Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Can Congress give away its power to the executive branch? I guess it depends on how you read Article 1 of the Constitution, which creates the national legislature in the first sentence, says this, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Most of those constitutional powers are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, and then there are a few other powers scattered throughout. But Congress routinely delegates rulemaking authority to the executive branch. Congress writes statutes that task some executive branch agency or department with writing administrative rules that have the force of law. The detailed rules governing health care, environmental protection, labor relations, trade policy, immigration status, and a host of other issues are routinely determined by agency rulemaking rather than congressional lawmaking. And that's because Congress has delegated authority to the executive branch. Is that consistent? with Article I's vesting of all legislative powers herein granted in Congress. That's the central issue of the non-delegation doctrine, and it comes to us from the classic case of Schechter Poultry Corporation versus the United States in 1935. In 1933, just a couple of years before that case, shortly after Franklin Roosevelt's inauguration, Congress passed the National Industrial Recovery Act. And Section 3 of the Act allowed the President of the United States to approve codes of fair competition for businesses that were developed by trade groups or associations connected to those businesses. And the President could impose additional conditions on those industries and by his own discretion could provide exceptions and exemptions to whatever conditions that he decided to impose. Under the Act, President Roosevelt then approved a live poultry code for the New York metro area, which was a huge poultry producer at the time. And essentially, representatives of the poultry industry in New York ask the president to approve this code of competition that they come up with. He does, and it becomes the law. But it never really goes through the legislative process. The code that the president adopts sets a maximum number of hours people can work in a week and a day, sets a minimum wage, prohibits child labor, recognizes collective bargaining rights, and mandates certain trade practices. One of those trade practices was a requirement that butchers had to engage in, quote, straight killing. And essentially, this was a requirement that you had to grab the first chicken that came to you when you put your hand in a chicken coop rather than picking and choosing from among the available chickens. In a 1935 article, the New York Times reported that Justice Sutherland, during oral arguments in the case, asked what would happen if the chickens just huddled together in one end of the crate. And the lawyers for Schechter said, quote, that's a puzzler. And the courtroom just erupted into laughter. But for Schechter, it wasn't really much of a laughing matter. He was fined $5,000, a lot of money back then, and given three months in prison for violating this code of conduct that had been approved by the president, including violating the provision about straight killing. The question for the court is whether Congress's delegation of authority in the National Industrial Recovery Act was enough for the president to exercise that essentially legislative power. And according to the court, a unanimous court, the answer was no. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes wrote, quote, Congress cannot delegate legislative power to the president to exercise an unfettered discretion to make whatever laws he thinks may be needed or advisable. What Congress could do, though, is lay out specific policies to be further implemented by administrative agencies. 
As the court had put it in a previous case, Congress could do so by providing, quote, an intelligible principle that guides executive branch rulemaking. Since the Schechter case, Congress has learned its lesson. It doesn't just give blanket delegations of legislative authority like it did in the National Industrial Recovery Act, but it does give more specific delegations of authority and does this routinely. In the Affordable Care Act of 2010, for example, the phrase, the secretary shall, appears 909 times, at least by my counting in a word search I just did, and each one refers to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Usually, that is then followed by a command of some sort, like the secretary shall promulgate regulations carrying out such and such section, or shall determine the eligibility requirements under section X, Y, or Z. And the section it refers to then presumably provides some intelligible principle that guides the executive branch. So if the Affordable Care Act says that insurance policies must cover women's preventative health services at no additional cost, to take one example from the act, then the Secretary of Health and Human Services is going to have to write a rule filling in the details of which services specifically count under the heading of women's preventative health services. Is contraception part of preventative health? And if so, which contraceptive devices or drugs are included? This was the subject of the high-profile cases that came up about whether there should be religious exemptions to the HHS requirement that health plans cover contraception. And this all stemmed from executive branch rules written under the delegated authority from Congress. But that controversy about the Affordable Care Act was not about whether Congress could delegate rulemaking authority in the first place. Since 1935, that power has been largely unchallenged and it's a pillar of modern legislation. The non-delegation doctrine from Schechter Poultry is technically good law, but it sat dormant for the last 85 years. The most recent case giving the current state of play on the non-delegation doctrine is the 2019 case of Gundy v. United States, where we see at least a few of the justices signal their interest in breathing new life into the non-delegation doctrine and reconsidering these past precedents. Here's the technical background of Gundy. Congress has tried to make a uniform national sex offender registration system rather than the patchwork of laws that exist from state to state. And so in 2006, it passed the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, which required sex offenders to register under threat of federal criminal penalty. The act then delegates authority to the U.S. Attorney General to, quote, specify the applicability of the act to people who were convicted of a sex offense before the act went into effect, so-called pre-act offenders. And then the Attorney General can, quote, prescribe rules for their registration. The case comes up when Herman Gundy, a man who was convicted of a sex offense before the act took effect, refuses to register and then is convicted of failing to register, which is a federal crime, and it's done under rules that are promulgated by the attorney general. His attorneys argue that the delegation of authority to the attorney general in the act was itself unconstitutional because it violated the non-delegation doctrine. In an opinion written by Justice Kagan, the court disagreed, but the dissenting opinion by Justice Gorsuch, joined by Roberts and Thomas, highlights a fault line on the court with respect to the non-delegation doctrine and what it means for modern governance. As a side note, Justice Kavanaugh had just been appointed to the court, but his confirmation hearing took a while, as you recall, and so he missed the oral arguments for the Gundy case. And so even though he's on the court when the opinion's announced, he doesn't join in. Justice Alito then joins the liberal majority on the court, but he doesn't sign on to Kagan's opinion, and he actually signals in his concurring opinion that he'd be willing in a future case to rethink the non-delegation doctrine. So the case is a 5-3 vote with a four-person plurality by Kagan, and that's some inside baseball 
but it gives you a sense of how divided the court is on the issue, and it has implications that travel far beyond this one particular issue. Here's the basic argument from Gundy's attorney, as it was summarized at the very beginning of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 176086, Gundy versus the United States. Ms. Baumgartel? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. SORNA's delegation provision grants unguided power to the nation's top prosecutor to expand the scope of criminal laws and to impose burdensome, sometimes lifetime registration requirements on hundreds of thousands of individuals. It combines criminal lawmaking and executive power in precisely the way that the Constitution was designed to prohibit. This delegation is unconstitutional. And here is the basic argument from the acting Solicitor General arguing on behalf of the U.S. government that this part of the act is perfectly constitutional. Mr. Wall? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I I wanted to start this morning where Justices Ginsburg and Kagan did with the text of the Act, because I do think it is best interpreted in the way that we have said. It starts in the first section, this is at 3A of the appendix to the government's brief, with findings about existing sex victims and their offenders. It then says, quote, we want a comprehensive national system, end quote, to address the offenders. It broadly defines sex offender and the registration requirement. That's at pages 5A and 11A. And then it says in the 913D, it says, look, we know that translating the system that we've just crafted for offenders going forward is going to create some real practical problems. For one, it's literally impossible for them to comply with the timing requirement. Unable to comply. Those are the words in the title and text of 913D. So we are going to give to the Attorney General the authority to take this scheme and implement it with respect to pre-act offenders, recognizing that there are going to be some transitional issues. That kind of implementation is a classic executive function. It is what statutes give to the executive branch all the time. Finally, listen here to Justice Kagan's opinion announcement in the case with those arguments in the background. In case number 176086, Gundy versus United States, Justice Kagan has the opinion of the court. The opinion I'm going to describe is written for a plurality of the court, four justices from an eight-person court. Another justice came to the same result in the case, but didn't sign on to any of the reasoning in the opinion. The question in the case is whether a provision in a federal statute called SORNA violates the Constitution. SORNA stands for the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. That law requires people convicted of sex offenses but no longer in prison to register in their communities, to provide their name, address, and other personal information to law enforcement officers. The idea is that knowing where these people are, where they live and work, helps protect public safety. Consistent with that important goal, if a person fails to register, he's subject to substantial criminal penalties, as long as 10 years in prison. This case arose when a sex offender, Petitioner Herman Gundy, was convicted of failing to register under SORNA. He challenged a particular provision of the Act, Section 209.13d. That provision is about a group of people whom I'm going to call pre-Act offenders. They are people who were convicted of a sex offense before SORNA was enacted in 2006. 
Mr. Gundy is one such person. The provision, again, Section 209.13d, sort of trips off your tongue, <laughs> says that for pre-act offenders, the Attorney General shall have the authority, and I'm quoting now, to specify the applicability of SORNA's registration requirements and to prescribe rules for their registration. Under that delegated authority, the Attorney General issued a rule in 2007, about eight months after SORNA's enactment, applying SORNA's registration requirements in full to pre-act offenders. Gundy says Section 209.13d violates the constitutional non-delegation doctrine. Under our Constitution, Congress makes the laws, and it isn't allowed to delegate that responsibility to members of any other branch of government, like the Attorney General. Gundy argues that Section 209.3d violates that principle by giving the Attorney General complete control over whether SORNA's registration requirements should or should not apply to pre-act offenders. But to begin with, the four of us don't think that's what Section 209.13d says. That section actually requires the Attorney General to apply SORNA's registration requirements to pre-act offenders as soon as possible. It gives him some latitude as to timing, but it compels him as soon as he can to bring pre-act offenders into the registration scheme. We go through quite a number of the provisions in the statute to demonstrate that point. They all reflect Congress's efforts to establish as quickly as feasible a comprehensive registration program that would protect the public by ensuring that all sex offenders not in prison would register with law enforcement officers, not just those who would be convicted of sex offenses in the future, but also those hundreds of thousands of people who had already been convicted of sex offenders. And once the statute is understood in that way, the four of us think the constitutional question becomes quite easy. Although Congress can't delegate its power to make laws, it can give executive agencies substantial discretion to implement and enforce the laws. And that is what happened here, especially as compared to the broad delegations we've routinely upheld in the past, the Attorney General's authority under Section 2093D is highly limited. It is just to implement SORNA's registration requirements to pre-act offenders as soon as feasible. The upshot of all this is that we uphold the constitutionality of Section 2093D, thus continuing to apply SORNA to all pre-act offenders. Justice Alito has filed an opinion concurring in the judgment. Justice Gorsuch has filed a dissenting opinion in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas join. Justice Gorsuch didn't read as a dissenting opinion from the bench, but here's one of the highlights. He wrote, quote, The Constitution promises that only the people's elected representatives may adopt new federal laws restricting liberty. Yet the statute before us scrambles that design. It purports to endow the nation's chief prosecutor with the power to write his own criminal code governing the lives of a half a million citizens. Yes, those affected are some of the least popular among us. But if a single executive branch official can write laws restricting the liberty of this group of persons, what does that mean for the next? Today, a plurality of an eight-member court endorses this extra-constitutional arrangement but resolves nothing. 
Working from an understanding of the Constitution at war with its text and history, the plurality reimagines the terms of the statute before us and insists there's nothing wrong with Congress handing off so much power to the Attorney General. But Justice Alito supplies the fifth vote for today's judgment, and he doesn't join either the plurality's constitutional or statutory analysis, indicating instead that he remains willing in a future case with a full court to revisit these matters. Respectfully, I would not wait. Gorsuch is ready to roll on this, and he's signaling strongly, I think, to lower courts that this is far from settled at the Supreme Court. This is how an article from the magazine The New Yorker described the situation shortly after the Gundy opinion was announced. For the better part of a century, the article said the court has permitted Congress to delegate broad policymaking authority to federal agencies. The court has not struck down a statute under the non-delegation doctrine since 1935. Since then, the increasing complexity of modern industrialized society made it obvious that, even when Congress is not as dysfunctional as it is now, it's not possible for Congress to legislate the technical details necessary to regulate the environment, health, safety, labor, education, energy, elections, discrimination, housing, and the economy. As a result, executive agencies create regulations and implement binding policies. But as the article then goes on to note, the court has applied a test. If the statute gives an agency discretion that is sufficiently constrained by an intelligible principle, then Congress is not unconstitutionally delegating legislative power. And these really are the fault lines on the court now. Conservatives on the court see this broad delegation of lawmaking authority to the executive branch as unconstitutional, inconsistent with the separation of powers and the Constitution's vesting of all constitutionally granted legislative powers in Congress alone. Progressives on the court see this routine delegation of authority as indispensable to modern regulatory governance by executive branch agencies, and note that it's supported by 85 years of Supreme Court precedent. And so we should keep an eye out for a future case with a full court to see what Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh might do with the non-delegation doctrine. It's a doctrine that, if given a second life in the 21st century, and it looks like it might, would have far-reaching implications for modern legislation and executive branch rulemaking in the United States.